Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Heather G, SBC, Heather G. Is that too soon to start that way? It's it's very strange, but, but uh, <laughs> we're friends. I can take it. <laughs> I just think that that is the internal excitement that some listeners are probably feeling. Like to get you back to talk about this current event is like a podcasting grand slam. And I agree. And I'm glad that you decided to join me. Well, I'm so glad to be here. I've really appreciated your listeners and the time that we have spent talking to each other. So uh, we did a big episode about a year ago. It's maybe a little less. It's episode number 123, 123. And it is, uh, I have said many times, my favorite episode of this podcast. I have a number of babies that I, I hold close to my heart, but that one tends to sort of peek out above the the pack and we're going to basically do a couple things here today. I wanted to have you on to apply 
the framework that we explored in that episode to this Southern Baptist Convention abuse report that just came out a few days ago, a, a little bit over a week before this airs. We are recording this on Wednesday, May 25th. I think we have all the info. I don't think there's going to be any like big news drops between now and Monday. But in case there are, this that's why we don't talk about them in this episode. Uh, we're going to go through sort of what we need to know about what we talked about last year and apply it here. And I also want to talk a little bit about a theological angle or two and some psychological angles, including a spiritual abuse angle. So summarize what this report was, what it came out of, why are we getting this big 400-page document? By the way, neither of us read the entire 400 pages. I know there are some in the kind of podcasting or deconstruction type world who did that. We read the executive summary and uh, a couple of journalists and columnists who had read it and talked about it, as well as you and I read this long thread by a reporter uh, from the Houston Chronicle sort of giving all the the background of it. So we have a decent sense of what's going on. But if you think, why didn't they talk about page 120? Well, we didn't get to page 120. Anyway, uh, can you summarize what's the news here? What happened? Right. So for decades now, survivors of sexual abuse within the Southern Baptist Convention have been trying to seek justice from the Southern Baptist Executive Committee. And it has not been successful. So last year, after a great deal of pressure, partly due to the organization of survivors, it's much harder to shut them up now uh, because they're on social media, and partly due to the work of Rob Downen and other religion reporters at the Houston Chronicle, the SBC experienced enough pressure from their members at their convention meeting that, that the executive committee was compelled to vote for an investigation in a transparent investigation as well, a third-party independent investigation that included the waiving of privilege. So that was conducted by Guidepost. And I believe the scope of the investigation was into the actions of the executive committee in responding to sexual abuse allegations. It's not exhaustive as far as like all of the abuse within the SBC. This is really just skimming the surface of this one major entity And they found a number of significant things. A fairly recent Southern Baptist Convention president was credibly accused of rape. A number of key players that have been part of the convention for decades seem to really have been controlling the moves and controlling the information within the executive committee. Augie Bodo is is the biggest name that comes up. Ronnie Floyd is another big one. And these are all tied to men like Paige Patterson, and uh, Judge Paul Pressler, who were the architects of the conservative resurgence decades ago. This cluster of men are some of the main architects of the culture of the SBC and some of the main holders of power in the convention as a whole. Other things that they found, uh, for years, the executive committee claimed that there was no legal way for them to have a database of pastors that were reported of sexual abuse or of leaders that were reported of sexual abuse. And that was just a lie. Um, They had been maintaining one by themselves for the purposes of minimizing their own liability. So in the executive summary of the report, they said that what seemed to be driving the actions 
of these of this cluster of executive committee leaders over decades was minimizing the legal liability of the executive committee and of SBC leaders. But of course, some of these guys have been covering for each other for years. Yeah. You know, Paige Patterson uh, is accused of helping protégés who were accused of sexual abuse uh, get off easy, laundering their reputations. Uh, he's accused of mistreating women who reported rape while he was a president of an SBC seminary. Uh, Paul Pressler has been accused for years of molesting boys and uh, propositioning young men. Um, so there's a lot of bodies that are buried here. Yeah. Uh, so that's a pretty good summary. A bunch of individual instances of abuse by leadership, cover up by leadership, basically double speak about keeping a list. And that's not to get into the 700 pastor long list of, of potential abuse. And they, they give some examples of like individuals who it was hushed up. They were quietly moved sort of like we see in the movie spotlight about how they moved priests around. And then some of these guys pop up 10, 15 years later and are convicted of, right. you know, sex with minors. So certainly some, some very real, real world consequences, the immense cascading effects that this is likely to have on American religion and maybe even global religion and Christianity. So you have a, a rubric. It is, you call it the navigational system of white evangelicalism. Is that right? Yeah, that's a good term for it. So what are the key terms and understandings that we need to understand just in general about the way that, that this sort of system fits together before we start applying it? I think the most important theme is easy knowledge. Yeah, that's, you know what? I was writing my notes about how to ask you about this. And my first bullet point is truth is easy. Knowledge is easy. That is the thing on which everything else seems to rest. Right. So there is a mentality that is very strong within the SBC. It's in other denominations as well. Certainty promises safety and the world is very unsafe. So, of course, we want to be as precise as possible with our knowledge. But I, I think we have a very difficult time dealing with the magnitude of sin in the world and its effects. So in the SBC, you have a culture that prides itself on being sometimes the only ones who take sin seriously. But I think really what is often happening is we have to make sin small so our small God can save us from it. Hmm. Because it's so awful. So one of the things that tends to happen is that we take our perception for real of reality for granted. Which is directly links the idea that that truth is easy, that knowledge is easy. Whatever we are perceiving, yeah, we we see things as they are. Yeah. Yeah. So theologically, there tends to be at least a tacit assumption that if sincere men are reading the Bible. They aren't really interpreting it. They're receiving the plain meaning of scripture. And if they are sincere and assent to the propositional data of scripture with sufficient intensity, they will not only see scripture clearly, but will see all of reality clearly. Yeah. Yeah. You call this sincerity culture, which intersects meaningfully with easy knowledge. Yes. So sincerity becomes a stand-in for one's level of faith. 
So my internal witness of my sincerity becomes a measure of my faith. And the goodness of God becomes tied, even if we wouldn't say this explicitly, there's a sense that the goodness of God is tied to guaranteeing that I'm not going to get anything significantly wrong if I am sincere and believe the right things, believe the right Bible facts, and I'm trying my hardest to follow them. I think about some of the examples of faith that are given in the Bible. Like I'm thinking of Abraham and Isaac and Jesus on the cross and in the garden. And I'm just like, it's so interesting because I think this is a very non-biblical understanding of faithfulness. Like the Abraham situation and Jesus in the garden, what they share, however you interpret, you know, those stories and the mental states of the characters at any point, they are complex situations. There is uncertainty. Abraham's like, why would God want me to kill this son that God promised me? I guess I'm going to keep going along with this, but it's like internally about as tumultuous of a story as one can imagine, which is why Kierkegaard picks up on that for fear and trembling. And then my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross and in the garden? Take this cup. If it be your will, it's like, (laughs) these are super complex, super uncertain situations where faith is like a moving forward in spite of uncertainty. I hope I'm not straw manning here and no one, there are no Baptists here to kind of give a counter argument, but like to make it be, well, all the, the world's easy to know. All this stuff is, is simple. So all it is, is whether or not you really believe it and, and really do it. There's no complexity here. We're getting rid of all the complexity. It's, it is really, it's a sad turn. Yeah. And it manages our feelings of being overwhelmed by a complex world. You're responsible for less if the world is easy. Right. World is simple. So in the Southern Baptist Convention, like many other um, white evangelical denominations, developed during a time period in American culture where there was a heavy emphasis on populism and a great deal of confidence in the common sense of the average working man. So there there is an impulse to recognize that, (laughs) to recognize their dignity before the Lord, but they anchored that impulse uh, frequently on the ability, first of the local congregation to discern reality quickly. That morphed over time, particularly in the early 20th century into a very individualized concept of soul competency, where instead of the Holy Spirit showing up for the local church discerning the Holy spirit showed up for the individual sincere man. I think we can say two things at once. One is that elites are assholes, myself included. Uh, We do have classist tendencies. We do inherently look down on people who are less educated, who are less well-spoken. I'm aware of it. I've seen that, Uh, prejudice in my own heart and mind. I see it in my affect, in the way that I physically react around poverty uh, and people in lower classes. I don't know how to act around them. I think that that's a real complaint. It's very real. I participate in it myself. We can also say that, unfortunately, the answer to that is not, 
we don't need your guys' big thinking. Knowledge is simple. Sadly, that's false. I recognize the pain and the frustration and the feeling judged. Totally true. The solution, though, in this case, is to double down on something that is false and therefore will lead to damaging consequences. Right. You don't have to be educated to be virtuous. You don't have to be educated to have a character that is conformed to Christ. Yep. You don't even have to have a good theology or understand what you're doing, which I think that those things matter. But your level of education has nothing to, is not going to guarantee that your character is good. And it often makes us worse people because we become more arrogant. So anything that has prestige that we have access to, we are going to puff up. I I think what goes wrong with these populist solutions that give us easy knowledge is it's not really correcting the arrogance of elitism. It's democratizing it. Yes, it's taking it. Here's our version of elitism. We'll just apply it back to ourselves uh, without putting any work in. You can recognize it as a guttural, you know, corrective response, but that doesn't make it right. You know, it doesn't make it accurate. It's a sinful response to <laughs> another sinful response. Yeah. Which we, we are all prone to this. I don't think we're the only culture that does this. I think that this is a universal sinful dynamic, but we have institutionalized it in particular ways in American evangelicalism, at least in in white American evangelicalism. I mean, really in any system, people who are in power and have the most social capital get to control the story of what's going on. So their vision of reality counts most. And if they have entrenched sinful blind spots, there's really very little way to hold them accountable. If everybody in power has the same type of formation, same type of background, or has conformed themselves to the standards of that background, and they see themselves as neutral in their perception of reality, they are the baseline. They're just going to write off anybody that doesn't see what they see. I think this is really worth understanding that this is so related to the knowledge is easy thing, right? So if truth is easy, then those who don't see an assent to the truth that we see an assent to, they must be very stupid. Like they have to be pretty stupid, not Mm -hmm. just like the way that someone might say, well, you probably aren't going to get into Harvard. No, they have to be like quite stupid or else they have to be bad. Yes. And since most people are not that stupid, most of them must be bad. And therefore, any expertise by someone outside that world doesn't really count because those people are clearly not stupid. They got a doctorate or they got a master's degree. So they're not stupid, which means they're bad because they should see the obvious truth that we see. And since it is obvious, they're bad. This leads very easily to a lot of othering and demonization. Yes. So in the SBC, they're not necessarily going to call people stupid, at least in public. The terms that they'll use are emotions. So they're emotional. So this is how women are dismissed in the SBC on a regular basis or any person of color. They are led by emotions rather than the truth of God's word. So the sanctified mind 
of sincere white male Baptist leaders, sees the world clearly. And these are often very emotionally immature men because emotions are so devalued. Let's say somebody is upset about abuse. <laughs> well, if, if it's disproportionate in the minds of uh, the male leaders, well, that person is being led by their feelings instead of the truth of God's word. And right. they're being unforgiving because a part of how they learn to respond to the effects of sin in the world when it's so horrible is they'll rush through any sort of process of healing. So all you have to do if you commit uh, a sin against somebody is confess the sin, say it was wrong and ask for forgiveness. And as long as you're sin- sufficiently sincere, the other, per- the wounded party should receive your sincere profession of repentance and your confession, and they should forgive you. And then everything is great. As long as the men in charge sign off and say that this person is adequately repentant. So emotionalism is a primary way where they dismiss people as unbiblical. Biblical and unbiblical are the main terms that they'll use. The creation of a liberal other is very important here. And this is just so much a part of SBC culture is is this internalized fear of becoming liberal and becoming emotional and therefore unbiblical is a sign that you are about to become liberal if you haven't become so already. And so any sort of anxiety that someone feels in a situation can be described as some sort of register that somebody else is being liberal. Yeah. I do want to clarify for the listeners, because we are talking about a lot of different subjects and we are both outside of our expertise. Yeah. Um, Let's clarify what my credentials are here. I'm just an autistic person with a master's of theological studies. So my research focused on Paul and the letter to the Romans in the context of second temple Judaism. (laughs) Um, But I have this longer standing interest that got me into uh, biblical studies in how white evangelical traditions in the U.S. read passages of scripture that talk about the heart or the mind and how they develop pastoral care practices outside of that. Yes. And, you know, I think we should be careful. It's it's good to be careful. And you haven't peer reviewed or published this stuff we're talking about here, this kind of programmatic understanding of how white evangelicals navigate their way through the world around yeah. knowledge and maturity and all that. I do think that you will do that and it will be extremely helpful because I have already assigned our episode to many clients and recommend it to many friends and basically unanimously people find it quite helpful. So I think there's something there. Uh, And before we take a break, I do want to make sure we hit one more aspect that we haven't hit yet that I think is going to be important here of your way of understanding that. And that is maturity badges and the consequent low bar of spiritual maturity. So tell us what we need to know about that. Yeah. And I also want to talk about how that's tied to shame. If knowledge is easy, there's tremendous shame if you fail to see something. And if the goodness of God is supposed to guarantee that we don't miss anything really important, if we are trying so hard to follow Jesus and love him and believe the truth of his word, it makes us feel incredibly unsafe with God to think that we could miss something massive like structural racism um, or that we might have missed a predator that was grooming children in our midst for decades. So that's all terrifying. 
So maturity badges, any system is going to have some sort of standard through which they promote men to power or people to power if you if women are allowed to have power. What happens is if you have easy knowledge is that the standards of maturity tend to be quite low. It's really hard to grow if you think you already know the main points. Not just the main points, the infinite main points of the universe and God's character. Yes, because as we mentioned earlier, in these white evangelical traditions, they tend to lose virtue. And if you lose virtue, you lose process. Yes. Like, for instance, my maturity badge two plus years from now will be, I will be a licensed psychologist with a doctorate of psychology, which means I will have done four years of school, 2000 hours of clinical experience, whatever all these numbers are. And then I will be passing all these exams and then I will be licensed. And that's predicated on an assumption. It's not easy to be a psychologist, a medical doctor, a surgeon will have done eight years or whatever of school and residency before they are fully licensed and able to practice on their own. Because we assume surgery is not easy. Being, you know, like getting to that level is not simple. Now I recognize the thrust of populist religion in that, yes, that's all true, but in some sense, following God is not like those things. It can be done by anyone with any level of, you know, intelligence, people with various uh, disabilities can all love and follow God and love their neighbor to, to the extent that they can. That's true. It is not the same thing, but it's like you talked earlier about the local church. So, okay, a local pastor, and there's 50 people who say, we believe that God has called you to be our pastor. Let's discern things together. Okay, fine. But now we're talking about Paige Patterson and we're talking about these men who actually end up having immense power and they have no process like the one I'm going through or your or your surgeon has to go through. And so now we've got a real disconnect between what they have and what they can do. And, you know, these big mega churches, same same thing, right at a slightly smaller scale. There's no licensure. There are sometimes no boards who can actually have any say over these people's jobs. And then crucially, like you're talking about, the the worldview that they are operating on has left virtue out. It's left habit out and and maturity to greater and greater heights of holiness, of loving kindness, of Christlikeness. Well, once it's all just simple, it's just a matter of mastering the 20 to 40 Bible facts that make up our perfect system of infinite truth. I wonder if what I'm saying is the populist model works in small groups, but breaks down in larger groups. Same thing maybe with therapists. You might know, hey, this guy's really wise. This gal's really wise. But like you wouldn't send them across state lines to do that, right? Like if no one knows you and you're just coming in from somewhere else, we need some other mechanism to know we can trust you kind of a thing. Sure. So and this is this is a lot of what will go wrong in abuse crises is, you know, there's not, you have to respond within a certain frame of time. I mean, one strategy that, that organizations will use is to kick the can down the road and to not respond. But if you are trying to do the right thing, you're going to respond. And that means that you might have to work with people that you don't know well. You don't have time 
to gain a decade's worth of, of experience of this person's character and in a range of different situations and see how they hold up. And so often we will trust leaders on a regional level that we don't know personally on the basis of whether people we trust, trust them. Yeah. Whether or not they have the relevant expertise or are willing to listen to people with the relevant expertise. Because again, there, like you said earlier, there is an extreme suspicion of experts. Yeah. Part of what happens with this unwillingness to listen to experts and abuse is they're often women or they're people that would get coded as liberal. And there's lots of deeply habituated reasons to write them off yeah, uh, or to treat them with suspicion. So again, if somebody says something that does not land in your magic knowledge receptor and you are a sincere man dedicated to the truth of God's word and you're not interpreting the Bible, if a legal expert uh, in abuse like Rachel Denhollander says something that you or your lawyers do not see, you know, well, maybe she is just getting led astray by her feelings, by her lady feelings, you know, or maybe Rachel is kind of liberal. If you'd like to become a patron of this show via the Patreon campaign, which is $5 a month, you will have access to at least two exclusive episodes per month and the patron-only Facebook group, a great little online community. The most recent exclusive episodes are uh, the third of four installments with Ariel from Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible, discussing a passage from the Gospel of Luke, and most recently, uh, a Generation Gap Culture Hour, which is Tony Jones and myself with uh, a little more input than usual from Josh Gilbert, our producer and editor. And Lindsey Stranigan joined us as well to respond to the leaked Roe v. Wade decision uh, and to talk a, a lot a lot of angles around abortion and where things are going in this country. So if that's interesting, join the Patreon, patreon.com slash Dan Koch. That link is in the show notes as well. And you have access to all the previous patron episodes as well once you sign up, not just the new ones that come out. All right. Back to my long uh, and complex and I hope helpful conversation with Heather. All right. Welcome back. Thanks for being with me, Heather. So this is a quote, I don't remember from which leader, but it's one of the leaders of the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention quoted in this report. Uh, and this guy says, this whole thing should be seen for what it is. It is a satanic scheme to completely distract us from evangelism. It is not the gospel. It is not even a part of the gospel. It is a misdirection play. Yes, Krista Brown, a survivor, and Rachel Den Hollander, survivor advocate, have succumbed to an availability heuristic because of their victimizations. They have gone to the SBC looking for sexual abuse, and of course they found it. Their outcries have certainly caused an availability cascade, but they are not to blame. This is the devil being temporarily successful. This is like one for the annals. I mean, there is so much going on in this paragraph. So what do you see through the lens of sort of your rubric going on here? Well, they mentioned Krista Brown, who 
is one of the earliest survivor advocates in the SBC. Like for a long time, she was just doing this alone and she was demonized. The SBC treated her like trash. So by the time this is written, it's no longer acceptable in public to malign the character of survivors. You can still do that sometimes, but for survivors like Krista Brown, it's a bad look to malign them. So what you have to do is you have to make them emotional and sub-rational, unlike the godly leader who wrote that. Right. And it's not their fault, mind you, bless their hearts, bless their poor little heads. They are just led astray by their experiences of abuse. And so they're seeing it everywhere and they are just getting taken advantage of by Satan. And this is a distraction from the good work of the church. This is a distraction from evangelism. So there's a minimization of the problem. There is a cushioned way of discrediting survivors and advocates by making them into people that cannot see clearly. Yeah. And there is this criticism that these irrational women who are driven by their traumatized emotions are distracting us from this noble work of the church. And here I am as this noble man who cares deeply, like he gets to present himself as somebody who cares about these survivors, even, even though he's been part of the system that has mistreated them massively and uh, demonized them. But he gets to paint himself as noble and someone who sees what's really going on. The reduction of everything to spiritual warfare is a very attractive explanation. I think a lot of times people believe it. There's a reason that it's plausible when you are looking at the experiences of people who have been sexually abused by the church, it threatens our sense of reality. It threatens our sense of safety. It threatens our sense of God's goodness. If, if you follow it through, you will start to wonder who can I really trust when what is real. And this is where I think easy knowledge steps in so conveniently because like we said earlier, if knowledge is easy and you don't see things the way that I see things, then you are either very stupid, you added in, thankfully, uh, overly emotional, led by your feelings, or you're evil. Yes. So he basically gets to have his cake and eat it too here and apply both emotionalism and evil. Now, because what you said, you can't get away with saying that Rachel and Krista are evil themselves. So you can say they're misled by emotion because knowledge is easy and they don't, they're not getting it. And then also the evil part is not, well, they're not evil, but Satan is using them. Uh, and probably other people involved are evil. These emotional women are manipulated by liberals. Right. Evil liberals, right? Mm -hmm. I can totally describe these things and I've been able to describe them for years when it's my people and somebody that I trust mishandling abuse allegations I will just assume that there's something I don't know. Yeah. You know, cause I can see how hard they're trying, you know, there must be some other explanation other than they're screwing it up cause they're not listening to the right people. There's another irony in this statement, which is that he selectively uses science, the availability heuristic, which was developed by two atheist Jews, psychologists, Kahneman and Tversky, and then says, oh, well, I will use this concept from, you know, atheist Jewish psychology to explain what my detractors are doing. 
But then I'm also in the same paragraph going to say that it is Satan who is orchestrating this whole thing. So I think there was more you wanted to say about shame. Yeah. All right. So shame. Certainty is promising us safety. And if, if you can get to certainty by being sincere and believing the right things, and that should translate as you're, as you're walking through the world into the practical wisdom that you need to face a situation, there's not a big incentive to grow and to learn from people outside your tribe. And so we'll often be faced with situations that are well outside of our zone of competence. And if you go into that with overconfidence, that I should be able to figure this out, or the people that I trust who have the exact same formation that I have should be able to figure this out together. We face tremendous shame if we fail and that shame can pile up. So there are three strategies available for dealing with broken relationships and shame that is beyond the community's current capacity to repair. And by repair, I mean, can you connect with Jesus? Can you help this person deal with what they have done without minimizing it? Um, Can they make restitution and own what they have done to the people they have harmed? And can you help them become someone who won't do that again? So the first two strategies are the ones that communities normally take. And if you want to keep somebody who has done harm, you have to minimize the harm that they've done, or you have to offload some of it or all of it onto scapegoats. So in some systems, it's still, okay, it's still okay to demonize survivors or to make some survivors less credible than others. Um, and therefore, we don't have to listen to the bad survivors, uh, make the advocates liberal. So therefore, we don't have to listen to anything they say. By the way, we do this on the left, too. So oh, everybody does this. Joe Rogan had the Proud Boys guy on. So I don't need to listen to Joe Rogan's interview with this other person who might have a little different view of what I think about X or Y or Z, right? We, okay, well, Rogan's out. So now I don't have to think about Rogan and okay. My cognitive dissonance is down for the moment. Oh, so every community does this. Yeah. But if knowledge is easy, you're going to get stuck in these first two responses. Yeah. If you want to keep this person, you have to offload it onto scapegoats. So the survivors are not credible in some way. They're led by their feelings. They're succumbing to an availability heuristic. This group of survivors is undesirable in some way. They are liberals is always a favorite or some variation. The woke mob, CRT, or, you know, this is all just spiritual warfare. You have to externalize it. You know, this is an attempt to distract us from the good work that our churches are doing. You're going to offload that shame because we want to belong and we want to feel safe. So the third option is recognize that we don't know how to trust Jesus here yet. We don't know how to trust that God can really be good if, if sin is actually this bad. So the third option is to say, Jesus, we need your help. We do not know how to get out of this. We need to go find people that know how to handle this better than we do, which usually means that people outside your tribe. Almost always. Because if the people... If the, if the people you trust were already good at this, you wouldn't be in this problem. Right. So but this the reason this is not available in easy knowledge cultures is because all right thinking men in our community would have figured this out by now. 
So it makes it really hard to grow and deal with failure and to grieve because the goodness of God is threatened. If people that are sincere and are trying as hard as they can to follow Jesus and believe the truth of God's word miss something really big and cause a lot of harm. When Ravi Zacharias died, his daughter showed that she had a different view of the world than he had and that his maybe the handful of executive board members or whomever that ended up as yes men to him. And she said, you know what? We're going to pause everything. We're going to bring in a third party. We're going to truly investigate this. We're not going to circle the wagons anymore. And, and she sort of, she was doing option three, right? She was saying, we actually don't have the tools here in this organization to know what to do about this. So we're going to reach out. And that was obviously the right thing to do, but it, it sort of shows that and maybe that generation gap was different. You know, she's not her dad. She's a woman. I don't really know anything about her life. So I don't know what formed her, but obviously there was something different. Of course he was protecting himself, but you know, that's when you see evidence of a shift. I, I think that we can understand now with this sort of background that you've given us up to this point in the conversation, how that third option, recognize we don't have the tools, seek with God's, you know, with God's discerning help for the people who do have the tools. There are a lot of hurdles. It's going to take essentially what it took, a national news story for us to do that. We are, it will be the last thing we will do is to seek help from outside. And it took, yeah, I mean, literally like national news stories and the Houston Chronicles big news story that they had uncovered a lot of the stuff that Guidepost uncovered previously, but just without the SBC's blessing, right? And uh, Rachel Denhollander and her national platform as a former gymnastics champion, right? It took publicity, essentially. And then enough people went to the convention and said, no, we really do need to take option three. And the funny thing is this report details 21 years from, from 20, from 2000 to 2021 or whatever, but like they could have started earlier. I mean, who knows, right? Like they, they just, that's the time they started. Yeah. The, the scope of this does not encompass all of the SBC. The real problems have got to be much, much worse. Right. You know, what people don't realize with, with abuse is that only a small percentage of these things get, gets reported. And you, you don't actually get a chance to mishandle it unless people have some level of hope and trust that you might do it right. Gosh. So like, this is, this is part of what happens in these cultures is you get best boy in the room syndrome. You get somebody who exceeded the minimal standards of maturity and everybody around that around them that has a similar level of authority and power is worse than they are (laughs) so what kind of feedback are they going to get from these other men that they respect right well let's transition into the theology it's explicitly stated in that paragraph that i read uh and it's it's very consistent throughout the sbc's messaging around this and other issues We are here to plant churches, to send missionaries, and to convert people to Christianity through accepting the gospel, Mm -hmm. because we believe in eternal conscious punishment in hell and eternal glory and union with God in heaven. That is like, that's our marching orders. It is what we are on this earth to do. It's our number one thing. 
Now, the problem with that is that if you did believe that, this PR strategy is still a bad one because anybody involved here knows all the Catholic abuse scandals. They know about that. They know how that went. And they've got to know that there's at least a good chance with all these pesky advocates and journalists around that this will get out and that it will hurt the mission of the church, just like the sex abuse scandal has hurt the mission of the Catholic church. You're at like, well, weird. So that doesn't line up. But in my mind, when I put your rubric into this, I go, wait, maybe it is not actually about the mission. It is about maintaining our system of easy knowledge and certainty to keep our anxiety at bay. And if that's what it's about, then it's about that not only for the leaders of the executive committee, but also for the congregants and the delegates to the convention and the other local pastors in the network. If it's about that for all of us, then these hurdles, we, we will not jump through these hurdles to bring in a third party to go outside the group. I am much more interested in the people that are not consciously lying, but in yeah. the people that create a, a shared narcissistic fantasy world. Because what narcissism is, a, one way to think about it is that it's about idolatry. That, you know, in that gap between what, what we think Jesus can really do and how awful sin is in the world, we have some sort of buffer. And we will often create some idol and call it Jesus. And that will become part of our group identity and our group story. And it's going to cost us our identity and our sense of safety to let that go or to recognize, like, this is not doing what we think it's doing. So usually what happens is, is the people in power are rewarded for priorities, prioritizing certain things. So, you know, again, with the, with the devaluing and often disdain for emotion, these guys are not rock stars at pastoral care most of the time. Some of them really do become great at it. But realistically, if you're working with my white middle-class people, 80 to 90% of pastoral care is just being a good and sympathetic listener. <laughs> so, you know, if there's something more complex, like a marriage crisis or a domestic abuse or some sort of tragedy or illness, you know, that, that requires a significant upgrade in the skill set, and some of them develop it, but often they're just offloading that onto the women of the congregation or the biblical counselor. There's a lot of ways that, that men can insulate themselves from overwhelming human suffering. And people will just think they're great if they're kind to them and are listening. So like you can literally go through your entire career, decades of a career with people just loving you and thinking how kind you are because you learn to be a polite listener. And that can actually help them connect with Jesus. If, if, if people that represent the church are kind to us totally. and we feel heard by them, that makes it a lot easier to expect that Jesus will be kind to us and will hear us. Yeah. I mean, it's like if your therapist gives you unconditional positive regard, even if your therapist isn't that good, you're still more likely to utilize therapy in the future because your, your therapist treated you well. So that's yeah. the same principle. I get that for sure. Yeah. So they don't have to develop the more complex skills, like learning to manage your own distress. If you're hearing somebody disclose their experience of horrific abuse. 
So if you actually have to sit with those stories, that does something to you. That is, that is, it is so hard to live with how evil sin is and how much it damages us. So there, and we don't prepare pastors well for this at all. Like most seminaries don't give you any substantial training in pastoral care. The people that develop pastoral care skills that are more advanced are, are having to cobble that together through other resources and through apprenticeships with people that know how to pray, know how to connect to Jesus in suffering. That's It's not really part of the curriculum in any sort of robust way. Well, and you're really kind of talking about trauma-informed care and trauma-informed other, other types of things. Like there are people who have resources and have learned things, but they're outsiders, right? They're outsiders. So the SBC has by and large back to the biblical counseling tradition, which there's different streams of this. Some of them are better than others, but they are all, they are all rooted in a very individualist model of, of growth that often depends on this uh, easy knowledge. You know, believe the truth of God's word, focus just on your individual responsibility. There are people that practice that really well and, and are wise and mature and healthy people. And Jesus really does show up and I don't want to knock them, um, but they're, they're often practicing better than the theory that they've been given. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a disdain in many pockets of the SBC for even the term trauma. They'll just, they'll just look at you and write you off as unbiblical if that comes out of your mouth. Right. And often a new term, a new concept like trauma emerges because of deep unmet needs in a culture's ability to respond to something that's going on. So I think part of the reason we developed the concept of trauma is because the church made the concept of sin, you know, sin is treated as something that I, as I, as an individual willfully choose to do and I know that I'm doing it and I'm choosing to do it and I could choose not to do it if I just trusted Jesus enough and believed the true Bible facts enough and a lot of the SBC like the standard of maturity is to be white and middle class and appear well-functioning and the kingdom of God is at hand and nothing else will ever be asked of you as long as you are sincere about the right Bible facts and are suspicious of the liberals. And you could go through your entire life. And you know who would be a good candidate to broaden the skill set, the uh, processing of grief, the feelings and bodily sensations that come about when we do come up against these big existential problems and questions and possible shortcomings? Women. And if women were in leadership and were a part of formulating doctrine, practices, liturgy, church polity, whatever, I wonder how much of this would be would be solved and would be better. Let me let me ask you this before we very briefly talk spiritual abuse. I think people probably could guess what I'm going to say about that. Evangelicalism or the SBC in individually, you know, there will always be populist forms of religion, which means there will always be populist forms of Christianity. Does white evangelicalism 
need to die? It, obviously, we don't know the answer to this, but like, does this report shift that answer for you at all? Is there a branch of this that can be reformed and become something beautiful and bridge building? Or are the structural weaknesses too strong and the thing's got to crash and someone's got to build something else in its place? I'm just curious where you're at and if this story changes that at all for you. So most of my experience of healing happened in a church that did everything they could to take pain seriously and to take the effects of sin seriously. And to say like, if Jesus is real, he can help us with this. And they were willing to learn from anybody. And over decades, they developed a great deal of institutional capacity. And I think people like me do not get better without that. So one of the silly things that we do is we just get cartoonishly anti-institutional. I noticed that evangelicals love therapy, but they'll use a lot of anti-institutional rhetoric as if as if everything good that they get from therapy wasn't dependent on imperfect and often, often really toxic institutional structures, you know, but that still function well enough to form people in these wisdom traditions, you know, and to develop these wisdom traditions and to build on them. So I am somebody that believes very deeply in institutions, even though I'm critical of them. I'm interested in how, how do we bring people to maturity within communities? And how do we form institutions that are conducive to that? You know, also taking into account, you know, these very normal sinful maladaptations. So I think over the past year, I've gone from somebody who hoped that the system that I was in would be able to be an example of responding to abuse properly. And I have completely lost that hope, you know, to the point where I don't know who I can trust anymore. I know I can trust my husband. I've been married to him for 15 years. I know that I can trust people who are not, you know, big name rock stars who have just been quietly working in their little patch of land, (laughs) you know, learning how to help people. But I have been so saddened by how even people who are trying to help make preventable mistakes because they are in love with their own judgment for no reason. (laughs) And they refuse to listen to people you know, all of our attachment trauma is going to get transferred onto our institutions uh, like the church and onto pastors. And most pastors get distorted feedback from the moment they get their maturity badge. They're either all great or they are the worst. So I've, I've really lost hope with our current institutions. I have not lost hope in the black church. You know, this is not news to them. So, I mean, there can be, there are plenty of narcissistic pastors in Black church traditions. There's plenty of institutional corruption. We shouldn't romanticize it. But there is a depth of wisdom of people that know how to pray and know how to connect to Jesus in a world that is full of evil and sin. So I want to hear what those people know. I have felt so betrayed by a lot of the people that helped me who could not resist conspiracy theories, could not see this as something that indicates we need more healing. You know, for people who have not recognized that we actually need to do something about the generational sins of structural racism, the people who think that they can remain apolitical, I, that has broken my heart. There are a few things that I am really holding on to, and 
there have been times this past year as I've looked at how my denomination has responded to an abuse crisis where I'm like, what, what is real here? How much of my experience in church has been this, has been LARPing, live action role play, where we are just pretending together and mutually suspending reality and creating a fantasy world in which we're more mature than we actually are. And it's a false faith and a false Jesus, and it's just idolatry. I have wondered that many times, but Jesus still shows up for me. So there are a lot of times where I pray like, Jesus, I, I don't know that you're still good and real sometimes, and I don't know how to trust you here. So I need you to show up in some way that is outside my head that I'm not trying to make happen, where I know that you're still with me and you're still real. And he's very kind to answer those prayers. Like we've had to leave our church. And our church has taken such good care of us, our local church. We love them. You know, they, they took care of us when my husband almost died. You know, they've showed up for us for years now. And we've, we've given very little in return. And we trust them and respect them. But we can't stay because of how our denomination is handling the abuse allegations. And it's horrifying. So the way that I am surviving right now, and this is not how I want to do things, but as I call my friends and we pray together and we listen to the people that have wisdom in areas where we need to grow. But I miss feeling safe in church. This church has been my family, my entire adult life. I have received so much good from the church and I believe Jesus wants to do so much more. But I think that when we see massive mishandling abuse of abuse, like we see in the SBC and in other denominations, it is the fruit of roots that are far deeper of, of avoiding shame. You know, like so many men are, are just told, be a man. They're not equipped with what they need to be mature adults, but they're expected to just be men and to be invulnerable and to be protectors. They're not taught how to deal with shame at all. And we put them in positions of authority. Like it's, it's horrifying to have to respond to an abuse crisis. It is a tremendous amount of stress. Like I do have empathy for like how hard that is. It's still their job. It's still their job not to demonize survivors or advocates or just treat everybody, every, everything that you don't like as a woke mob, you know, so you don't have to deal with what your part and what the part of your coworkers that you like has been in a crisis. But it is really hard. Like so many men who are like really likable guys do not know how to ask for help. I'm not as sad for them as I am for the people that they're hurting, but I am sad for them. You know, I hear that, but I don't know. I, I, and maybe it's just going through psychological training, you know, and I have a supervisor and there are sort of mechanisms in place, but like you can always fucking ask somebody. Oh, you and, can. And I, I, so I just like, I don't know. Like if you asked for this job, if you accepted the job to be the leader of anything, and you are shirking the simplest thing of like, yeah, you don't Asking know how, how to ask for help. Uh, that's on you. Yeah. And you shouldn't be in charge. And you shouldn't be in charge. I, I do want to just respond to, you know, your kind of outpouring of emotion here. I'm, yeah. I am. Um, I'm being emotional. I'm moved I'm by it. By the truth of God's word. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you lead us astray with your, uh, non-sanctioned, emotion-led, um, you know, easily corrupted by demonic forces, uh, fem feminine wiles, Heather. No, but, 
you know, I'll, I'll say very little here just because of time about spiritual abuse. I have two things to say. And the first one is a perfect tie into what you've just expressed, which is that the sexual abuse, the original abusive actions that are were covered up, you know, that this report details and any other sort of specific abuse by, you know, physical or spiritual abuse directly between a perpetrator and a victim. It, that, of course, has effects. And, and the scale that I developed, you know, measures some common examples of those effects. But there is also a larger scale effect like you're talking about, where you are not one of the victims of abuse by men in your denomination. You are a part of a group of people trying to get that denomination to respond well and to reform in appropriate ways to prevent that from happening again. And when they don't, you are experiencing effects of spiritual abuse by the leaders of the denomination that your healing church is associated with. And it is affecting your ability to be in spiritual community with people who have loved you well. And so those these effects, the spiritual abuse effects, they ripple out far beyond the particular victims of individual acts of abuse. So that That's one of my two sort of takeaways. And I'm, I'm curious if you want to respond to that. Yeah. When we don't really believe that Jesus can help us, we have to escape into a fantasy world, often in an attempt to hold on to Jesus. I mean, I would rather know, even though it hurts, I would rather not have false hope that I can tr- trust my leaders. Yeah. You know, and I, I think that some of this is generational. I think that people that were immature and promoted to positions of authority for having good doctrine and hating liberals and being sincere have bypassed their own growth in the name of doing God's work. Those guys are going to die in the desert. They're going to die in the desert and they're going to call it the promised land. And they're going to tell stories about the exile from liberal Egypt. And they're just going to see themselves as persecuted. Makes me so sad and angry. And you're totally right. You're totally right. They're going to die that way. They're going to die that way. What is sad for me is how many people I love are going to die in the desert. Yeah. And uh, how many people don't want it to be that way. Like they want, they, they're, they want to respond to abuse well, but it requires facing things about themselves and about people that they've trusted that they don't want to see, because this isn't just about abuse. It is ways that we do not know how to be present for people who are suffering. We don't know how to deal with our own shame if we fail, and we don't know how to repair our mistakes. So for them to become good at those things, they don't just have to look at abuse crises. They have to look at the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years in ministry and look at ways where they prioritize things in the name of following Jesus that may have been good things, but, you know, they, they let a lot of people die in the ditch, you know, and, and maybe a good Samaritan found them later, but they were not the good Samaritan. To me, that is heartbreaking. And I feel so betrayed. And I know a lot of people feel betrayed. We need to ask Jesus to get us out of the fantasy world. You know, because we're very, it's very tempting to go into another fantasy world. It's really easy to just give up on our common life. And, and that's, that's part of how immature men gain power is everybody else doesn't want to deal with that stuff. A hundred percent. And, and it's, it's the ultimate tightrope to walk 
even in the sort of religion research community, which I, which feels like this abstract thing that I am a little bit of a, a part of or whatever, but it's hard to take seriously both the great capacity for harm and the great capacity for good and healing and community and social connection and whatever. And, yeah. and so that's why my worry is like how many millions of Southern Baptists and other Christians in America and beyond America will have their faith affected by what these leaders did to quote, protect the mission and, and what kind of, downstream problems will that lead to? And if the whole thing implodes, which I don't think it will, but if it, if the whole SBC implodes, as Jim Wellman put it, how many millions of hours of free therapy light are people going to stop getting to love their families and communities better and focus for an hour and a half once a week on, on being a good person, connecting with God, right? Even if they're not really connecting with God, even just doing something good with your family, you know, sure. just like all these downstream effects, which also yeah. have health effects and they have all these kind of things. You can't get your mind around the level of destruction. It's almost immeasurable and all for what? So a handful of powerful men could be dipshits for a couple more decades together. You know, like the, it's stunning. It's stunning, it's stunning. How, how much of them believe their own fantasy. You know, it's like I, either 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 the idols are going to die, either we are going to let go of the false Jesus. And for some people, you know, like, you know, I have been given an awful lot. I have been given all sorts of experiences in which people who knew Jesus well taught me how to connect to him. And so I, I have never had doubts like I have had this past year in my entire adult life. Mm. But I, even in that, like, there's actually a certain level of security with Jesus and being able to say, like, I don't know that you're good here. Like, I don't know that I can trust you. I don't feel safe with you anymore. I don't know that you were, you know, I've lost so much hope. Like it, it feels, I have, I have gained so much faith in the power of sin to destroy and warp and distort and lost so much hope in the ability of Jesus to save us. But I still believe and I still know Jesus and he still keeps on showing up, even if I don't know how to trust him. But most people have not been given that. Like if all you have been given is try harder to mean it more, you know, focus on the right Bible facts and nobody ever taught you how to pray. And you were taught to worship a narcissistic God and uphold the mythology of the church, just like you were taught to uphold the mythology of your immature family, you know, a lot of those people are going to lose their faith and they really should. Cause that's not Jesus. Sure. If Jesus is real and Jesus is good, there's no way to find him in that world. Like he, he can still find us, but like they're, they're not pointing you to Jesus in some ways. It's not a bad thing at all for them to lose that. So are they losing a lot of social capital and institutional support and really valuable human connections? Yeah. That's going to have tremendous consequences, but those can be rebuilt. Yeah. Well, I've just, I'm just going to close with this. Um, we've gone way over our usual time, but I always have, I always have time for you, Heather. Uh, I'll just say um, briefly, one of the subscales of my spiritual abuse scale is called maintaining the system. And that of all the six subscales, that is the one that jumped out to me in bold, all caps, as I was reading everything I've read about 
this report, you know, the prioritizing the, uh, you know, legal culpability of the SBC as if that is somehow more important than millions of people potentially losing their faith. Uh, you know, it, it's it's entirely wagon circling. It's entirely, I don't know. But one one interesting takeaway for me from this whole story is one thing that apparently works when an institution is protecting itself and maintaining its system is utilizing the media and public advocacy. That apparently can get some gears to start moving and get some rusted wheels moving again. And so I'm taking that away. That's that's one takeaway here. That like these fucking guys were never going to ever make any of this public. They would have died with it. And you know, a handful of activists who were organized enough and media savvy enough, they put themselves on the line. I remember last year during the convention, some of them live tweeting about their interactions with these people. And Pastor mm-hmm. Stone was in, you know, he's in that Twitter thread and, and maybe a little bit in the report. You know, that that kind of stuff, like that worked. And uh, well, that's that's why social media advocacy is just treated as a violation of Matthew 18. And, oh, these shrill liberals, if only they'd act as if only they had asked us nicely and gone through the proper channels. <laughs> right, 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 right. Bullshit. Oh, yeah. So um, I'm going to put a link to I have like a research handout that I've put together, which has the clinical screener for the scale and some of the basic research findings, including the. Uh, laying out those six subscales. I'm going to, I'm going to have Josh put a link to that in the show notes. So if people want to look at that a bit, they can. In the meanwhile, Heather, thank you so, so much for your time and your wisdom and your, uh, honestly, your vulnerability and, and candor about your own experience around this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are going through this and it helps, it helps to have language for it. Yeah. And I, there's also a link to our previous episode from last year, episode one, two, three, if people want to listen to that and, and dive back into sort of the way you see this navigational equipment working for white evangelicals. Again, I found it so helpful. And I know thousands of people have as well. So thanks and keep up the work. Thanks. I appreciate you. Take care.